Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A vigil to address white supremacy and gun violence after a terror attack. It's very scary just to walk down the street, not knowing if someone's just going to ride by and shoot you because you're black. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Could carbon removal be the answer to climate change? But if we're going to stop global warming, that rise needs to be turned around and we need to almost eliminate emissions from the atmosphere entirely. And varying reaction to one superintendent and her words about Asian students. Plus, the story of young adults who are aging out of their parents' immigration application. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A white terrorist shot and killed 10 people and injured three more in Buffalo, New York, on Saturday. The incident happened at a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood, and 11 of the 13 people who were shot were black. The FBI is investigating the shooting as a hate crime and an instance of racially motivated violent extremism. People across the nation are coming together to fight against violent hate crimes, including here in San Diego. Joining me to talk about the fight against gun violence and hate crimes is Bishop Cornelius. Is Bowser, director of Shafat Outreach. Bishop Bowser, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you are organizing a protest tonight against gun violence and white supremacy. Why is it important we start talking about these two issues as one? It is important for us to come and provide this space to address this, especially what's happening on a national level, what we saw happen in Buffalo in regards to uh, the gun violence. This is an issue that we have been dealing with for years uh, in regards to uh, having a national database to address and track due to background checks on those who buy guns so that we can prevent gun violence like this from happening. But also we need to understand that we're addressing the hate, right, that uh, centers around with race 
and guns. And when you look here in, in America, you know, there's a history of racial violence, especially against black people. You go all the way back to slavery and even after slavery and in every era you will see that there have been racial violence against it. But I believe now one of the problems that we have is uh, it is being perpetuated by, you know, uh, on the political arena. In our own community, uh, right here in San Diego, we've seen a rise in hate crimes. They nearly doubled last year. And just last month, a teen was stabbed in a hate crime. What do you think is driving this increase? Well, you know, hate has always been there. And from the perspective of dealing with race and so on, uh, hate has always been, I think, you know, coming out of the uh, pandemic, COVID-19, and uh, with the stress that a lot of folks are dealing with, I, I see not only with racial hate, but I see this hostility towards each other in our communities everywhere, right? And so when you have hate and racial hate and racial violence, that seems to escalate because people, you know, are um, on the edge, right? And because of that, it creates a space for people who wants to commit violence against someone else, they, you know, folks start doing that. And so that's one of the problems that we have today is that we have these spaces that are provided for people who have hate, you know, like on on the media outlets and different things like that. So I believe people are being fed, right, in their minds, uh, this hate. And so when they see someone, they commit violence against that individual. And because of the, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, the political arena and the talk that is being perpetuated in regards to racial hate and uh, things like conspiracy theories and replacement theories, you know, especially when it comes to dealing with black people in regards to, you know, wanting to uh, replace or disempower uh, white people and so on. So these theories are out there and these conspiracies are out there and people really believe these conspiracies. And because they believe these conspiracies, they are committing violence against one another and being allowed to do that. And then with the access of guns, you have so many guns that are out on the streets today that I always say everyone, but then someone would say to me, well, uh, not everybody, I don't have a gun, but you have to assume that everyone has a gun because there are so many guns out on the street. So everyone has access to guns of people that have no self-control, uh, don't know how to deal with their anger. And so it's reflected in our communities, whether it's a shooting or a stabbing when it comes to racial racial violence against one another and so on. But I think that, you know, with the social media uh, and these platforms that people are able to go on and be fed this hate and be fed these conspiracies, and they start believing these conspiracies and start acting on these conspiracies. And that's why you see in certain lanes when it comes to racial hate and racial violence, you see uh, what happened in uh, Buffalo. And it's also reflected here in the uh, city of San Diego and the county of San Diego. It's very scary just to walk down the street, not knowing if someone's just going to ride by and shoot you because you're black. Last week, an appeals court overturned California's ban that prevented people under the age of 21 from buying semi-automatic rifles. It was a ban born from the Chabad of Poway shooting in 2019. Do you think that impacts efforts to stop gun violence? Yes, absolutely. And if an individual cannot buy liquor at the age of 18, that individual, he or she, should not uh, have that opportunity to buy a firearm, whether it's an assault rifle or a handgun, and so on until they're 21. I do believe that that can, you know, when you have individuals that are not really mature, we know that a, a young person's mind is not fully developed until they're 25 or 26 years old. And so if, and to allow an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old to get possession of a gun, that can feed into the problem that we're already dealing with. So, yes, that ruling really does hurt us when we talk about trying to prevent gun violence from happening in our community. It feeds into that violence. You know, how do you think law enforcement's response has been to surveilling the rise in activity among white extremist organizations here locally? 
Well, you know, from what I've observed and what I've seen, it's, it looks like federal government is more on it than uh, the local agencies. You know, when you talk about uh, uh, law enforcement or police and so on. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the federal government and their surveillance and really watching these extremists and, and these um, racist groups, white supremacy groups that are out there that can commit harm against folks. But I think on a local level with policing, I think, you know, the focus has more been on policing the black community or uh, looking at black and brown communities as where the crime is and where they focus on a saturated, uh, saturating police officers in those communities versus focusing more attention on white supremacy and on these white groups that's right here in the city of San Diego that are very violent, very uh, dangerous, and more focus should be on them versus the same way they put focus on crime and gangs in our community, they should be focused on white supremacy and these hate groups that are here in the city of San Diego and the county of San Diego also, which I don't believe they're really doing that at this time. You know, what kind of trauma do these terrorist attacks and hate crimes have on the community and how far reaching is it? Oh, it's very traumatizing uh, when you look at in Buffalo, that community out there, you can imagine 10 people, but the whole community has been impacted. And not only that community has been traumatized, but like cities, all of us, even here in San Diego and so on, have been uh, traumatized where it puts us on a fight and flight mode, right? So it's like, what do we do? Do we arm ourselves too? Now I'm against guns and I don't believe in that, right? And so we're constantly in this fight and flight mode or the freeze mode, paranoid, and that's what trauma does to us, right? And so we all trying to deal with it. I think that we need to just like they're probably providing support services for individuals in Buffalo that need to be provided everywhere because uh, this traumatizes a nation, especially black people, when we see these type of um, incidents happening. I've been speaking with Bishop Cornelius Bowser, director of Shafat Outreach. He is one of the organizers of a vigil protest against gun violence and white supremacy at the Balboa Park Fountain tonight at six o'clock. Bishop Bowser, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What seemed like science fiction 10 years ago is becoming a key component in recent climate action proposals. Carbon capture, removing excess carbon dioxide emissions from the atmosphere, is essential to the latest climate report from the United Nations and is an essential element in California's new climate roadmap released by the State Air Resources Board. And just this month, the U.S. Energy Department announced it's investing more than $2.3 billion for carbon capture technology. Many climate scientists say including carbon capture as part of climate action is necessary in the race to limit global warming. Not every climate activist is convinced. Joining me is David Victor, Professor of Innovation and Public Policy at UC San Diego. David, welcome to the program. Terrific to be with you, Maureen. Is this embrace of carbon capture by the IPCC and other climate scientists an admission that we are failing in the effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, I think it's an admission that the first thing you have to do is cut emissions. And we've just waited too long to do that. Emissions right now are going up about 1.3% per year. That's not as fast as they were going up the previous decade, which is about 2.3% per year. But if we're going to stop global warming, that rise needs to be turned around and we need to almost eliminate emissions from the atmosphere entirely. We just spent so long going to meetings and talking about this and not getting very much done that we're now committed to at least one and a half degrees of warming, probably two degrees of warming. And this new report from the UN recognizes that and recognizes that even if we have a crash program to reduce emissions, 
we're also going to have to pull some of that, some of those emissions that have accumulated in the atmosphere, have to pull them out and put them uh, safely away from the atmosphere. Yeah. Can you tell us what this carbon capture technology actually does? So there are many different technologies. Some of the technologies involve building machines that actually uh, take the carbon dioxide. It's very low concentration gas in, in the atmosphere and concentrates it uh, and then puts it safely underground. So they're machines. are very expensive right now, but the costs seem likely to come down with investment. You can do it the old-fashioned way, which is to grow trees or plants. There's some interesting work going on at Salk and other places uh, where you can engineer plants so that they absorb that carbon in the, in the root structure and in the soils and then combine that with no-till agriculture, and that could put the carbon back in the in the ground. You could protect mangroves, a variety of other strategies. Some people are looking at how to change the chemistry actually of the oceans, and then that would then result in the oceans absorbing more of the carbon dioxide and keeping it out of the atmosphere. Has any of this technology been proven to work in reducing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere? Well, some of the elements have been proven to work. So for example, take these engineered machines. There's a project going on right now in Iceland relatively small quantities, about a few thousand tons of carbon dioxide per year, but but all profound technologies begin at a small scale. That's an example. We've been working on crop engineering for a long time, so it's an extension of those kinds of technologies. If we could figure out how to grow more trees in a safe way and also protect those, unfortunately, many of the world's forests are in places where it's hard to protect those trees, then we could that and could end up uh, playing a significant role. So I think what we what we've seen is that the elements of the technologies and the ideas are there. What really has been missing is attention to which of these options can really scale up and have a big impact. That's the research that, that we do at UC San Diego. Is how does a system as a whole operate, and how quickly could you move from having nascent technologies like these projects in in Iceland to something that would have a profound impact on the entire climate? Right, because wouldn't carbon capture have to be deployed on a massive scale to make an impact? Yeah, it would have to be a uh, truly massive scale. I mean, we're talking about billions of tons of carbon dioxide uh, uh, per year. Current emissions are about 55 billion tons of all greenhouse gases. This project in Iceland is a few thousand tons. So it gives you some sense of the complete disconnect in scale. And one of the things we've learned from our research already is that even if the technologies improve rapidly and we get started right now, it's probably going to take a few decades for the technologies to improve enough and for the scale to be reached that these carbon removal options could be material alongside outright cuts in, in emissions. So that's a, an argument for getting started. That's one of the reasons why the Department of Energy has so much money in their new budget for this kind of technology. It's why places that have been leaders on climate change, including California, are recognizing they're going to have to be leaders on carbon removal as well. Now, critics say that this emphasis on carbon capture allows the fossil fuel industry to keep going when our efforts should be focused on clean energy. What do you think about that? I think that if you focus your efforts on clean energy and do a serious job there, you still have the reality that it's emissions from the entire planet that affect global warming. And so unless we expect China and India and frankly, the rest of the United States to get in line with the kinds of things we're already doing here in California, then we're in for quite a lot of warming. And so I think you have to walk and shoot gum at the same time. You have to make a big effort, massive, much more serious effort than we made so far to controlling emissions and then recognize the reality that there are also emissions that have accumulated in the atmosphere that need to be pulled out. And that's true even in California. Uh, essentially, every major plan that's been outlined in the last few months for cutting emissions from the California economy still has some parts of the economy where it's just too hard to eliminate all the emissions, so-called residual emissions. And it's those emissions that we will have to pull out of the atmosphere, even here in California. Now, the U.S. government is working toward a public-private partnership in developing carbon capture systems. But how will carbon capture make money for private enterprise? 
Well, ultimately, private enterprise is going to have to see a benefit from this. The engineered machines probably cost on the order of $1,000 per ton right now, maybe more. Um, many studies, including our own work, suggest that that cost may come down to a few hundred dollars per ton. So we would need to create some kind of incentive where people would be paid for that to bear that cost. To put those numbers in perspective, right now, the cap and trade system in California, the price has been bouncing around quite a lot, but it's a few tens of dollars per ton. So you're going to have to create an incentive structure that rewards companies that go out and do this. And even then, it's it's risky technology. You don't know how well the technology is going to improve. You don't know whether all the buyers are going to line up. And so this is one of those areas where government and industry need to learn to work together so that government does what it often does very well, which is to help lower risk, help subsidize early public good technologies. And then the industry does what it does well, which is figure out exactly where and how to allocate capital and how to run these projects with the maximum economic impact. You know, as the world approaches the 1.5 degree threshold of warming, you're saying it's going to take quite some time to get this technology up and running. So how much time do we have to get this infrastructure in place? We're in the world of trade-offs right now because we haven't done enough early enough to act on climate change. And so I think it's inevitable we're going to cross 1.5 degrees. I actually think, I thought for quite a long time that we're not going to stop warming at 2 degrees. The real questions are, are we going to bend down these emission curves enough to avoid even worse outcomes like 4 degrees or 5 degrees of warming? Those were the standard projections uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So we're now starting to bend down the curves, not fast enough. So I think we're really in the realm of trade-offs. And one of the things that carbon removal does for us is allows us to, to reduce the amount of total warming uh, when we make a big effort that includes controlling emissions. I've been speaking with David Victor, Professor of Innovation and Public Policy at UC San Diego. And David, as always, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, Maureen. It's always a pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego Union High School District Superintendent Dr. Cheryl James Ward's remarks about Asian students have caused outrage. But KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim says Chinese-American parents are divided in their reactions. During a DEI board meeting last month, San Diego Union High School Superintendent Dr. Cheryl James Ward said this when asked why data showed the district's Asian students excelling academically. We have an influx of Asians from uh, China, and the people who are able to make that journey are wealthy. You cannot come to America and buy a house for $2 million unless you have money. She later elaborated that family finances impacted academic achievement. Because when we look at socioeconomics, it plays a major role. Following these remarks, several Chinese-American parents have spoken out against the superintendent for what they see as a harmful and inaccurate portrayal of Asian-American students and their families, like at this school board meeting on April 20th. Okay, I support black people, Asian people. Thank you for your comment. Your time is up. Let me finish. Thank you for your comment. Your time is up. Because, because I think Sir, thank you for your comment. Your time is up. So you should be first. You should be first. So far, the dominant narrative on social media and in the news has been that all of San Diego Union's Chinese-American parents and guardians agree 
that James Ward, who is black and currently on administrative leave, should be fired. But the community is not a monolith. And in the wake of the incident, parents have divergent views on what they believe the best course of action should be. Right now, I feel like a lot of the parents, especially moderate parents, are really got intimidated by the by the fierceness they're seeing at the at the school board meeting. That's Albert Lang. He's a legal guardian of an incoming Canyon Crest Academy freshman. He says the fallout from the incident has divided San Diego's Chinese American community. He believes the apology and healing plan James Ward emailed to district families is sincere. He wants to build solidarity and learn from the situation. To have this more moderate and cohesive voice trying to unite other minorities in the community to collaborate with everyone. Lang fears a lot of the controversy is being fueled by misinformation being shared on WeChat, the Chinese social media app which many Chinese-American San Diego parents use to share and translate district news. It's not hard to identify the kind of cultural wars that have been waged on people and also just the purposeful distortion of information. Lang says he's also sympathetic with a contingent of parents who say too many resources have been squandered on the district's lawsuits and a revolving door of superintendents. You know, just wasting the money on something that's really both unnecessary and, and, and political, which is really not what many parents are looking for. However, many parents feel the only way forward is for James Ward to resign. Among them is Dan Dan Pan, whose children graduated from Canyon Crest Academy. I don't know how she can continue in this district with, with this damage being done. Um, I personally believe there's a saying in Chinese that you really cannot put the broken mirror together. Pan feels James Ward's comments, whether intentional or not, erased her own experience as an immigrant pooling money to be able to go to school in the States. I came to the States 30 years ago. My parents borrowed the money from about 50 people, $100 each, so $5,000, to pay a quarter of my University of Michigan tuition. And that erasure and that hurt, which is at the center of the community's reaction, is something Leah Tao, another Canyon Crest Academy parent, understands all too well. They see us as foreign and a little bit exotic and maybe a little bit out of place that we're not part of the community. Tao actually sat down for coffee with James Ward, whom she had never met. The two ended up speaking for hours. She came away convinced that all the focus on James Ward obscures the more important point, which is that these issues are multi-layered and need to be addressed through conversations, not screaming matches. I feel like these conversations take a long time and I don't want to see it as like, you know, you don't see my point of view and that's that. It's also not lost on Tao that what's happening in the San Diego school district is a microcosm of the United States specific racial politics, which have long pitted Asian communities against other communities of color as model minorities. You know, you're using Asians as like a standard for how minorities can beat all odds and achieve greatness. So telling other marginalized groups, hey, why can't you do the same? Why can't you be like them? She says all this has her thinking about the 30th anniversary of the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles, which severed Black and Korean community relations for years. I think all people are focused on is let's fire Dr. Ward, but they don't see all the history 
that is all connected. On Thursday, the San Diego Union High School District Board of Trustees is scheduled to meet again. And parents and community members from across these various perspectives are planning to attend to make their voices heard. Christina Kim, KPBS News. Overdose deaths in the country reached a new high in 2021, according to data from the CDC released last week. One major tool to help lower that number is naloxone, a medicine that can save people from opioid-related overdoses. But not everyone gets the medicine when they most need it. Here's what San Diego County Director of Behavioral Health Services Luke Bergman told us about it last week. We need to make sure that there is naloxone in the hands of everybody who may be around someone who is overdosing. We need to make naloxone as available and as easy to access as as condoms have been for a long time. But one place where access to the life-saving medicine is not available to everyone is in local jails, and that soon could change. The Citizens Law Enforcement Review Board, known as CLRB, voted last week to recommend that jail inmates get access to naloxone. Here to tell us more is investigative journalist Kelly Davis. Kelly, welcome back to Midday Edition. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So what did CLRB decide last week? Last week, the board voted unanimously to send a recommendation to the sheriff's department uh, requesting that naloxone be, the term was readily available to all people in, in San Diego jails. How is naloxone being used and distributed in local jails today? It's not distributed in, in local jails, but deputies carry doses. I think each deputy carries two doses. So if they find someone, you know, a man down, they're able to provide the naloxone. And I know that they have been successful in reversing overdoses. But often the people who catch someone who's overdosing first are fellow inmates. And so the recommendation, you know, what CLRB is recommending is, is making sure that all jail inmates have, have easy access to naloxone in case they're the person that, that comes across, a, you know, an overdose before deputies can get there. How big of a problem are opioid overdoses in county jails? For San Diego, pretty big. Um, CLRB actually commissioned a report by a firm called Analytica Consulting, and it, the, the report looked at mortality rates in San Diego County jails. This was released last month. And one thing that, that the report found is that in San Diego jails, um, people are more likely to die of uh, overdose death than in California's 12 largest county jail systems. As you mentioned, this decision was unanimous, but it was just a recommendation. So what would need to happen for it to become policy? Yeah, so CLRB, all CLRB can do is, is make recommendations and pass those along to the sheriff's department. So what their hope is, is, you know, they'll, they'll send over this recommendation and that the sheriff's department will sooner rather than later, you know, say whether they'll adopt the recommendation or not. And I have to say, CLRB has been issuing a lot of recommendations and most, if not all of them recently have been adopted by the sheriff's department. So I think that bodes well for, for this one. So you think it's likely? 
I do because I I've heard that this is the direction you know jails are moving in, and and I think the sheriff's department definitely wants to address these overdose deaths. You know, you write about a pilot program in Los Angeles County that provided naloxone to inmates there. What happened there? Yeah, this is really interesting. So a month after the program launched, there was an overdose in a in a certain unit. And they have this all on closed circuit TV video that monitors folks. And you could see the two people fall from the overdose and an inmate run over to this box on a wall, grab two doses of naloxone, run back over, and they're able to administer the doses of naloxone to the two guys who were down well before any deputies got there. So, And they saved the two guys' lives. So I, I think it really shows that this is a very uh, effective tool to put in jails. You also write about a local nonprofit called A New Path. Uh, They distributed naloxone to jails back in 2020, but they were never used. What happened there? This was around the start of the COVID pandemic, and A New Path wanted to make sure that people who were leaving jail early had access to naloxone because some of them were going to be on the streets homeless. And so they they turned over a training video and a thousand naloxone kits to the sheriff's department, and the sheriff's department ended up returning the, those kits unused. It was a very strange why this couldn't this very useful helpful initiative couldn't work out. I guess the sheriff's department said the kits weren't distributed because the department had not reached an agreement with the Service Employees International Union, which represents medical staff. So I guess it kind of got caught up in normal government bureaucracy and, you know, might have lost some lives because they couldn't get their act together. Well, there is an election coming up and San Diego County will choose a new sheriff. Uh, I'm curious if any of the candidates have made any public statements about increasing the availability of naloxone in jails. All leading candidates have have spoken about the importance of curtailing or you know reducing the number of overdose deaths in the jails. But the only one I've seen who has outright supported this policy is Dave Myers. You know, I tweeted a link to my story in the UT and he retweeted it and he said, I completely support this. So, so far, he's the only one who's responded in that way. But I'm guessing the other candidates would agree with this recommendation because, as we know, it, it has, you know, a similar program, Save Lives, up in L.A. County jails. I've been speaking with San Diego investigative journalist Kelly Davis about her latest article on San Diego County jails and the San Diego Union Tribune. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Jade. It's been called our natural air conditioner. The coastal cloud cover that we call May Gray and June Gloom traditionally keeps spring and early summer temperatures comfortable in San Diego. But climate scientists say that natural AC may be disappearing. A variety of environmental factors all linked to climate change are hammering away at the delicate balance between warm upper air, cool water, and onshore breezes that create coastal clouds. And the effect could mean a very different summertime experience in San Diego's future. Joining me is Dr. Rachel Clemesha of Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She studies marine layer clouds and California coastal climate. And Rachel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
I called it a delicate balance between the warm upper atmosphere and the cool ocean. Is that how marine layer clouds are formed? Yes, it definitely is a delicate balance. And what you mentioned is exactly right in the sense that we have our cool ocean surface here along the west coast. You know, you can compare that to something like the Gulf Stream if we went over um, to the east coast where the coastal waters at the same latitude are much warmer. So we have this cool ocean surface due to um, upwelling partially and just the advection, the waters flowing down from the north. Then we have warmer air on top of that cooler air. The warmer air in our region is due to subsidence. Um, so that's large scale sinking air mass. Um, and as it sinks, it warms. And this is really interesting and a fascinating part of studying these clouds, that delicate balance, because the subsidence is tied into the largest circulation of the globe, the Hadley circulation. So air rises at the equators and sinks in the subtropics. That sinking air um, warms as it sinks. And that provides, it acts basically like a lid on the lower atmosphere. So that cool, moist marine air is trapped close to the surface. And that's where we have these types of horizontally uniform clouds, our May grain, June gloom form. And is something happening, though, to our marine layer? Are the number of May gray and June gloom days decreasing? It depends on exactly what region you look at. So as you have a land surface that imagine maybe a chaparral or just a natural surface, you know, changes into um, an urban area and you have sidewalk and asphalt and rooftops, this will change the temperature of the region and it will definitely change the, in particular, the nighttime temperatures. It will increase the nighttime temperatures. When that happens, when we have this increase in what we refer to sometimes as T-min, our minimum temperature, it will basically dry out the cloud from below. So the location at which you would have condensation in your cloud form um, is now has to be higher up. It has to be higher away from the surface that has, is warmer. And so that will thin our low level cloud out from below. And um, when you look at it multiple um, years and months, what you see is then you just end up having less fog frequency. So you've thinned it out and reduced it. So we have linked that to urban land cover. That is definitely a human change. And we can see that trend in decreasing number of fog days um, in May and June. And we look throughout the warm season and the, the trend is stronger in those areas where we've done more to change the land cover. So in LA, it's the strongest, the LA region, especially inland LA, um, we see it um, to some extent in San Diego, but less so in Santa Barbara, where we have less of that urban land cover. And we also look at the Channel Islands where we have some airports and we can look at the trends in the level clouds and we don't see um, a large trend towards less low-level clouds in the island areas. If we see this trend continue and there's a major shift away from May gray and June gloom, how does that change our summers? There's a lot of iconic species that have, you know, evolved in this climate and um, rely on the low-level clouds for shading and for um, if it's low enough in that fog form where it really feels like you're in the cloud where visibility is reduced, um, there is an incremental you know, moisture source. So maybe you've seen, if you've been to Torrey Pines, those um, Torrey Pines, you know, they can get a little bit of water from that fog um, and the fog can drip down onto their roots. So without that, um, you're taking away that 
source of um, a little bit of water in a you know dry time of year. Um, there's also implications for both renewable energy sources and traditional energy sources. So um, as more and more homes have um, rooftop solar panels, I mean, maybe less low-level clouds would you know provide them. They're going to be generating a little bit more of their own energy. Um, conversely, if it's you know your cool May day um, is now a little bit warmer because you don't have that kind of cloud shield, um, more people might be tempted to get or run air conditioning, so there could be more demand. There's also impacts on air flight. So if you've had flights canceled sometimes because, especially when it's that fog and it's really low, the management of air traffic is impacted. I wonder, is there any estimate of how much longer we'll experience May gray as a yearly weather pattern? I've heard that Scripps has a contest for predicting the number (laughs) of May gray days. Is that right? Let me say that um, we don't have a consistent person winning on our contest because everyone's still, um, it's still a little foggy um, when it comes to everyone's forecast because it's not, it's not just a clear trend. You can't just take what you guessed last year, what the answer was last year, and, you know, reduce a couple points from that because there's a lot of factors at play. Okay, then I've been speaking with Dr. Rachel Clemisha of Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Thank you so much, Rachel, for speaking with us. Thank you. And thank you for your interest. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Turning 21 is a big deal, a reason to celebrate. You're finally an adult. But for some young people, in fact, 200,000 young people here in the U.S., turning 21 catapults them into a bizarre legal limbo. That's what's happening to Eti Sinha and her twin sister, Eva. The Sinha sisters grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. But as they got older, they discovered their right to stay here in California was conditional, temporary. That's because they've aged out of their parents' family immigration application. What do you do when circumstances beyond your control threaten to force you out of the only place you've ever called home? In a story that first aired on the California Report magazine, KQED's Rachel Myro tells us how Eddie and Eva have had to fight to stay and how they're helping others caught in the same limbo. Eddie and Eva Sinha were seven years old when they moved with their mom from New Delhi to San Francisco. We learned how to ride our bikes in Golangi Park. Um, We loved eating all like the Asian food in San Francisco and Bay Area, just just children growing up in the Bay. They joined their dad, who was studying to transition out of his first career in the oil industry. Now he runs his own Silicon Valley consulting firm, and mom is the director of admissions at a local university. In time for middle school, the girls' family moved to the suburbs, Fremont in the East Bay, where they did all the things you do growing up in Fremont. Yeah, so we went to Centerville Middle School and Irvington High School. We hiked Mission Peak during lunch breaks. Um, since it was an open campus, you would rush over to 7-Eleven, grab some taquitos, and rush back to 
uh, campus before class started. Eva was president of the French club. I was secretary of the French club. We never really felt out of place. We had a lot of other friends um, who were immigrants, either second and third generation immigrants. And I had quite a few friends who were immigrants themselves who came in elementary school along with their parents. But there was a critical difference between them and most of their friends. Eva and Eti's presence in this country was conditional temporary, and set to expire when they turned 21. They were dependents, riding on their dad's temporary visa status, and later his family's application for a green card, for the right to live and work in the U.S. more or less indefinitely. Most of my friends had gotten their green card by the time they were in high school. That's what their parents expected would happen for them. That was a big part of the reason why their family moved here from New Delhi. But just after they arrived, a backlog started to develop in Washington, D.C. because of a bizarre quota system set in place back in 1991. Every single country gets the same percentage of green cards given out in any one year. No more than 7% of the total in any given year goes to applicants from any one country, whether you're from Albania or Zimbabwe or anything in between. But of course, there are way more people from India and China applying, especially so they can work in Silicon Valley. So starting in the early aughts, year after year, the line got longer and longer and longer. Our parents applied in 2011 when we were in middle school. You know, they still don't have their green card today. So in high school, we really realized, okay, as much as our experiences are similar to our peers, We'd actually have the same amount of opportunity. It only dawned on the Sinha sisters in high school that their green cards might not arrive in time for college, that they might turn 21 while in college and suddenly switch from dependent to adult. Suddenly, they would become ineligible for everything from in-state tuition at a public school to all kinds of grants and loans. I couldn't help but ask the Sinha sisters if they blame their parents. Eva said no. They've played all their taxes. They've come here with the status. They've maintained their statuses, made sure that they're not, you know, they're following all the rules. And, you know, once their turn in line comes up, they would get their green card. It's just there's a backlog. They found a way forward. They both found a way to convince their respective financial aid departments at UC Santa Barbara and San Diego to let them pay the lower in-state tuition all the way through, even though they were both going to become international students in a few years. And while their 21st birthdays were a reason to celebrate... Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Andy! That day also marked a turning point. According to the federal government, they were now on their own. Foreign nationals who needed to apply for temporary visas to stay in the U.S. legally, which is exactly what they've done. After they graduated cum laude, both of them, Etty and Eva became experts on the visa system here in the U.S. Etty's on an F-1 now, an academic visa. I am a PhD student at Cornell University in New York studying biomedical engineering. Eva's employer sponsored her for an H-1B, the most common in Silicon Valley. I currently um, work as a financial analyst in San Francisco. That H-1B is temporary, of course. Six years since I got it in 2020, so 2026. Got that? She's only good to stay in the U.S. until 2026, unless her employer applies for a renewal 
or a green card, or she returns to her quote-unquote home country, a country she's visited but doesn't consider home. Hopefully my employer will apply for a green card for me, but I don't know. The card estimated is like 80 plus years. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 80 plus years. They laugh, but 80 plus years, with the threat of deportation to India hanging over their heads. We are, like, as American, as people who are American citizens, we grew up here. We want to continue our lives here. We want to contribute to the American economy here. Everybody else perceives us as American as well, from our peers to my, like, managers, etc. I think we're American every way but on paper. It's so obvious to everyone, but for some reason, not the U.S. government. After Eti graduates, she'll have to do the same thing as Eva, find an employer to sponsor her for an H-1B, and then a green card. Essentially, they're both hopscotching from one temporary visa to another to stay in this country. There's a name for this dilemma, for what Eti and Eva have become. Today, I'm representing over 40,000 documented dreamers in the state of California. Documented dreamers. At a recent committee hearing in Sacramento, Eva testified on behalf of a bill put forward by State Senator Maria Elena Durazo of Los Angeles. Senate Bill 1160 will allow dependent visa students that meet existing eligibility requirements to pay in-state tuition at California's public colleges and universities. This bill isn't for the Sinha sisters. It's for the students, the documented dreamers, coming after them. Even though SB 1160 can't address federal immigration law, it can make the cost of a college education in California a little bit more feasible. And that's good enough for Eva today. At age seven, I immigrated with my family alongside my twin sister from India to San Francisco. Growing up in the street... Doing it piece by piece, at least we can get some movement going. Having one big legislation, which will definitely solve everything, in the way that our government is designed, is just going to take forever. But there are bills moving at the federal level in Washington, D.C., designed to help more than 200,000 documented dreamers in the U.S., most of them Asian, roughly 70% Indian, ahead of more comprehensive reform. Good afternoon, everybody. I call to order this hearing of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration, Citizenship, and Border Safety. U.S. Senator Alex Padilla co-sponsored the America's Children Act, backed by the group Eva and Etty became involved with, an advocacy group called Improve the Dream. The America's Children Act would allow dependent visa holders to maintain their status even after they turn 21. No more fear of a wait time for a green card that lasts for decades. The term wait time for many, is actually a cruel misnomer. For applicants from some countries, the wait time is literally longer than any human's life expectancy. These aren't wait times. They are de facto bans. But even though the America's Children Act is targeted to help a small group of people who enjoy bipartisan support, the bill's future is murky. David Beer is a research fellow with the Cato Institute. These are people who grew up feeling like Americans, and they are in the same position their parents are in, um, trying to go through a lottery to win an H-1B visa, 
to be able to get in a backlog for a green card that has no end is not a good immigration system for anyone. But Beers says lawmakers on the right and the left have doubts about peeling off even the most agreed-upon partial solution. It's just too iffy in an election year. Even the Biden administration is curiously silent about documented dreamers. It just seems like they're so afraid of bringing up the word immigration. And so the Sinha sisters keep advocating for legal change, mentoring young people in the same situation, and trying to move forward with their lives while holding on to their dream of a future here, in the only place they call home. For The California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 